My brothers and sisters in Christ, my Parks Church family, oh my goodness, what an incredible time of worship. Y'all agree? I can't help but be excited just after the way the Lord has already moved, through the testimony of our students, through the worship that our worship team has led us in. I am excited. So y'all better hold on to your seats because we're about to get going, all right? I want to welcome our visitors here as well. It's our honor that you've chosen to worship with us today. We would love to get, you, get to know you more. So do please fill out those contact cards. And if you're so inclined, introduce yourselves to us at the end of the service. In case we haven't met, my name is Pat Knight. I'm one of the pastors here at the Parks Church. And uh, over the next four weeks, the uh, lay pastors will be presenting uh, the sermons that you hear. We will be preaching on wisdom passages from the book of Psalms and then seeking what God would have me share today. I landed on Psalms 119 and uh, have titled this message, The Wisdom of God's Word. Let's learn a little bit about Psalms 119 before we get started. It is a psalm glorifying God and His Word. It refers to Scripture over and over again. Of the 176 verses in Psalms 119, 171 of them mention some type of word of God, whether it be commandment, precept, statue, law. 171 times out of 176 verses, the word of God is mentioned in Psalms 119. It is the longest of all Psalms and the longest of all chapters in the entirety of the Bible. So long that George Weishart, the Bishop of Edinburgh in the 17th century, used Psalms 119 to his advantage. You see, George was about to be executed, put to death. But back in those days, there was a custom that you could choose one psalm to be sung before your execution. And so George, he chose Psalms 119. And before two-thirds of the psalm was done, his pardon arrived, and he was spared his life. So, yes, it's the longest chapter in the Bible, and we're covering it today. So you might be a little worried, because it's 1124 right now, right? Hey, rest assured, we're only looking at verses 9 through 16, though. 9 through 16. We won't be here until the end of time, unless Christ comes. What a glory that would be, right? All right, so... Let me tell you a little bit about what Charles Spurgeon has to say in regarding to this psalm, right? This wonderful psalm, from its great length, helps us to wonder at the immensity of Scripture. From its keeping to one subject, it helps us to adore the unity of Scripture, for it is but one. Yet from the many turns it gives to the same thought, it helps you to see the variety of Scripture, I have weighed each word and looked at each syllable with lengthened meditation. And I bear witness that this sacred song has no tautology in it, but is charmingly varied from beginning to end. Its variety is that of a kaleidoscope. 
from a few objects, a boundless variation is produced. In the kaleidoscope, you look once, and there's strangely a beautiful form. You shift the glass a very little in another shape. Equally delicate and beautiful, it is before our eyes. So it is here. So it is here. I want you all to notice, Justin did not read from Psalm 119 this morning. He read from 2 Timothy chapter 3. Just another example of how God's word is interwoven within itself, that one part of it is relevant to another. Two different authors writing here, stretched by many years, 500 years apart, and still relevant to one another. This is evidence that God's word is just that. It's his word, his truth from beginning to end, complementing, not contradicting, holy, exact, without error, and for our benefit. God, the creator of all things, speaking to us. You want to know how to be prepared for that interview with your boss? For a meeting with the CEO? For that very important business meeting coming up? Hey, how about a conference call with God, the creator of the world, every morning? That might put you a little bit of ease, right? That conference call is you speaking to him and him speaking to you. Us praying and him speaking within his word. We need to recognize that God's word is his word. There's three points I'd like to extract from 2 Timothy and then see how the psalmist illustrates them in Psalms 119. God's word is reliable. God's word is rewarding. And God's word is redemptive. Reliable, rewarding, and redemptive. Let's turn to the psalm right now. 119, verses 9 through 16. If you don't have a copy of God's word, there is one underneath the far end of the aisle you're sitting in. I would hope after we're done with this message today, you take it home with you if you don't have one, because I hope we see how important it is. Psalms 119, verse 9 through 16. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. And the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Wow. From the psalmist himself. I will not forget your word. He truly cherishes God's word. No doubt about it. So point one, God's word is reliable. This is important. If it were not reliable, it would not be from God and it would have no value. The facts are it is reliable. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time this morning building my case of the reliability of God's word. Because if we don't have a good, strong foundation of its reliability, when we stack on top its reward and redemptive qualities, they are shaken a bit. But if we build a firm foundation of its reliability, then his reward and his redemptive quality stand firmly. So do you think the psalmist 
finds God's word reliable. I question you. In verse 10, he says he seeks it with all of his heart. If it were not reliable, would he seek it with all of his heart? Verse 11, he stores it. He doesn't just seek it. He stores it in his heart. If it were not reliable, would he store it in his heart? With his lips, he declares it. If it were not reliable, would he declare it with his lips? He fixes his eyes on it, and he will not forget it. Verses 15 and 16. I do not think there's any question whether the psalmist regards God's word as reliable. 2 Timothy tells us that all Scripture is breathed out by God. Written by men, yes, but men who are writing the words of God. When we read God's word, we should realize and acknowledge who it is that's speaking to us. Think about this. The creator of the universe the creator of all things, almighty, all-powerful, all-loving, always-present, incredible, magnificent God is speaking to us right here in his word. And how often does it just sit on a bookshelf? How often? We should start our day with it. We should end our day with it. It should be the go-to resource in the middle of our day to help us get through whatever troubles we find ourselves up against. But it's not. Or at least, not as much as it should be for us. Or at least, maybe, for me. I don't stand up here as some super Christian telling you, hey, you know what, I got this all figured out. Because I don't. I long for a deeper burning and desire for God's word. You know what I stand up here telling you? I pray that you long for a deeper burning and desire for God's word also, right? So why? Why don't we give it the importance that it demands? Is it self-sufficiency? We think we can figure it out on ourselves? How foolish. We've heard the term in our culture, hey, I'm going to pull myself up by the bootstraps and figure it out. Frank Sinatra, what's his song? I did it my way. You're an idiot, Frank Sinatra, all right? Do it God's way. Hello, he's the creator of all things, almighty, perfect, magnificent, right? Do it his way. Is it pride? How arrogant. Too often, sin comes into our lives when we have too big of a view of who we are as people and too small of a view of who God is. When we have a big view of God and a small view of ourselves, ah, pride can't creep in then, right? Because we recognize that he is greater. Is it time? We don't make it a priority. Ah, oh, man, I'll tell you, I think this is where I land most of the time. This is the excuse I give most of the time. I just don't have time. I'm way too busy. I found myself the other day, as I'm preparing this message, reading an article uh, on ESPN.com about Russell Westbrook and what he's going to do now that Paul George has been traded to the L.A. Clippers. And it took me about 15 to 20 minutes to read that article. And I thought, you big dummy, have you spent 15 to 20 minutes in God's Word today? Time isn't the problem. Making a priority is the problem. Or do we not because we have some doubt? 
we doubt it's really from God? Oh, how deceived we are. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He is the king of all lies. If he can tell Adam and Eve in the garden that that tree, oh, no. It's going to give you all knowledge. You can eat from it. You'll be like God. And they can be deceived. Don't fool yourselves that you can't. Maybe we doubt it. Let's erase that doubt today. There are many evidences that the Bible is God's word. Today I'm going to give you two of those. But there are many. So many that if I gave you all of them, we'd be here longer than George Weishart was. Evidence number one, the Bible has stood the test of time. It's the same today as when it was written. It is holy and it is preserved. Archaeology is a friend of the Bible, especially with the manuscript evidence it has produced. The manuscript evidence is so great that everything else from an ancient perspective of manuscript writings that archaeology has found pales in comparison. From a high-level overview, I'm going to share this with you. The scientific world recognizes manuscripts of classical ancient writers to be exact in the content of their original writing. Some of those history, or those classical ancient writers are Homer, Sophocles, Plato, and Caesar. The Bible and the evidence from a manuscript perspective that it has far exceeds anything that archaeologists have found with classical ancient writers. So much so, if you were to take the average of every classical ancient writer and take each manuscript that has been found and stack it on top of each other, the average of all of the classical writers combined would give you a stack about four feet tall. All right? If you were to take the manuscript evidence of the New Testament that has been found and the Old Testament that has been found, and you would put it on top of each other, its stack would be two and a half miles. That's huge. It's huge. So much more evidence. But what does it matter? Is it the same? It is the same. I recall Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel has a pretty good analogy, I think. It's called the telephone game. You might have played it when you were a kid, right? you got 20 kids in a line, and the one that's first in line whispers something into one kid's ear, and the next one says the next to the next to the next to the next. When you get at the end of the 20 kids, the message is completely different than what the original was, right? I threw myself off there. I apologize. <laughs> the message is completely different than the original. Well, you know what? God's message is the same. And it didn't just go through 20 kids in a line. You know what it went through? It went through 1,500 plus years. It went through copies after copies after copies, thousands of them. It went through different translations from one language to another language. And it is still the same, holy and preserved by the hand of God. The same. Greg Gilbert in his book, Why Trust the Bible, says this. There are some variances in our manuscript evidence today versus the original. Some variances, right? This is what he says about those variances. The vast majority of the textual variants in the manuscript copies are just utterly uninteresting and undramatic. 
They have to do with plural versus singular pronouns, inverted word order, subjunctive versus indicative mood, and on and on and on. Nothing that, I'm not an English teacher, I don't even know what half that meant. But nothing, what I do know that it means is this, nothing that changes the context of the message. The message is the same. Is that enough for it to be the same? What if it's just the same error-laden message over and over and over again? That brings me to evidence number two. It is not error-laden. It is holy and perfect and trustworthy without compromise from beginning to end. It is God's word. It's not enough just to say that it's the same. It's perfect. Do you believe everything it says? You should. Everything. Do you believe that God spoke the world into existence? Do you believe that man was created from the dirt of the earth? Do you believe that Noah created a boat that put all the animals in it for 40 days? What about Jonah? Really? He was swallowed by a large fish and lived in the belly of it. Are we supposed to believe that? And that God separated the Red Sea and the Israelites walked through it on dry land? Are we supposed to believe that? Absolutely we are. Because let me tell you something. If you believe... If you believe that God stepped down out of heaven and took on flesh and lived a perfect life and died on a cross and then three days later resurrected himself from the dead to restore your relationship with the Father so that one day you will live in his presence for eternity, you better believe everything it has to say. Everything. Our culture wants to say the Bible is a bunch of fictional myths or even legends. They want to explain everything with science. The human intellectual wants to believe that he's smarter than God, or maybe even God doesn't exist. Just like with the manuscript evidence, I could give you tons of examples where science, the intellect, and atheists fall short of their explanation of God. But for the sake of time, I'm going to share my favorite one with you, right? Ben Stein versus Richard Dawkins. Ben Stein, comedian, author, commentator. Game show host, win Ben Stein's money. Ever seen that show? Economic teacher on Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Who is Richard Dawkins? An evolutionary biologist, public intellectual, and author. One of the most recognized atheists in the world. He's also the author of The God Delusion in 2006, where he contends that a supernatural creator almost certainly does not exist and that religious faith is a delusion. Well, in 2008, there was a documentary called Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed, and Ben Stein interviews Richard Dawkins in this documentary. The documentary is a film based upon whether creationism or evolutionaryism is is the proper place to land, or even just to debate, because it contends that in academia, professors that teach of creationism are expelled because that's not what our culture wants to hear. So Stein, Ben Stein asked Rich Dawkins this question regarding the origin of life. Where did the origin of life come from? And Dawkins' reply is, it has to do with an event with a self, where a self-replicating molecule existed. So Stein says, well, how did that happen? 
And Dawkins says, well, nobody knows. And Stein says, well, could it have been an intelligent designer? And this is what the world-renowned leading atheist microbiologist, self-acclaimed intellectual says. Are you ready for this? It could be at some earlier time, somewhere in the universe, a civilization evolved probably by some kind of Darwinian means to a very, very high level of technology and designed a form of life that they seeded onto perhaps this planet. That designer could well be a higher intelligence from somewhere else in the universe. What in the world is he? An alien from somewhere else took a self-duplicating molecule and seeded it on our planet. Where did the alien come from? Where? The fact of the matter is that nothing natural just comes into existing. Only that which is supernatural comes into existing, and that supernatural being is God. It's God. Unbelievable. In closing on the topic of the reliability of God's word, I'll just say this. There is so much, much more that I can share with you. We've just touched the tip of the iceberg. We could discuss things such as statistical prophecy, eyewitness accounts, historical evidence outside of the Bible, medical evidences, laws of physics, humans' behavior, on and on and on. I got some great references for you if you'd like to check it out later, right? First, Lee Strobel, Case for Christ. Great book. Even better, it's on Netflix. You can watch the movie and not have to read the book. That's the way I like doing it. Josh McDowell. An evidence that demands a verdict. Greg Gilbert, Why Trust the Bible? And yes, even the documentary with Ben Stein and Richard Dawkins himself expelled no intelligence allowed. Now that we've created a firm foundation that the Bible is reliable, it's God's word, his word spoken by him, written by man, same since the beginning and perfect without, where, without error, let's explore the rewarding and redemptive value of it. Let's read Psalms 119, 9 through 16 again. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. And the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts. I will fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. What are the rewarding aspects we see the psalmist mention? Let's look at verse 10. Let me not wander from your commandments. It is rewarding that God's word gives us direction. The psalmist doesn't wander here and to and fro, right? God's word gives us direction, and it's his commandments. So you know what? When it's his commandments, it's his telling us which way to go. You know what's great about that? I don't have to figure it out myself. I don't have to be self-reliant. I could be God-reliant. And that right there is a reward, and it frees me from a lot of anxiety. 
a lot of anxiety. God's commandments should be the basis of all decisions that we make. If we want freedom of trying to figure out things ourselves, why not rely upon the almighty creator of all things? Here's a specific example in my life. Ten years ago, I was a district manager for Dollar General. My boss came to me and said that his boss was interested in offering me a promotion where I would be a regional director and uh, get a whole lot more money and a whole lot more responsibility. The whole lot more money thing sounded really good, right? So who wouldn't just say yes to that? But instead, my wife and I prayed about it. And not just once, and not just twice, but we prayed, and we prayed, and we prayed. And we wanted to be certain that whatever it was that God was calling us to, that we would be obedient to it. And so after a few weeks of prayer, I went back, and I said, you know what, I'll take that job. And I took it. And we moved to the Oklahoma City area, where I was a regional director with Dollar General. I'd been in retail at that point in time, 15 some odd years, and had always been one of the highest performing, no matter where I was at. Always been. But that was about to change. That was about, or at least the perception of that was about to change. So I had a boss that after a year said I wasn't cutting it. And he said that I needed to consider stepping down, back to a district manager position. And uh, he was putting some pressure on me, a lot of pressure. It was pretty evident, even amongst those that worked for me, the pressure that he was putting on me. So evident that um, one of my district managers said to me, you doing all right? Her name was Pam Casey. I had an opportunity to be a mentor to Pam and, uh, and lead her in her walk with the Lord. And so we had a unique relationship. And I said to her, I said, Pam, I'm good. I said, me and God are tight. We got this, right? I don't know if you all over here know what tight is. That was 10 years ago. That means close friends, right? You know, <laughs> we, we hang out together. I don't know if you all still use that word or not. But me and God are tight. We hang out together. So... I'm called into the office one day, and I'm told, you need to step down. And I've got the freedom to sit on the other side of that desk with the person that holds my financial future in his fingertips. And I have the freedom to sit there and say, with all due respect, I believe your perception is incorrect of me. And that I didn't just accept this job because you offered it to me and it was more money. I accepted this job because I prayed about it and I'm convinced that God has called me here and when it's time for me to leave, then God will call me out and I'm not going anywhere. Whew. I wish I was that strong in all decisions I make. I'm telling you, this is just a good example. Every good one I got, I probably got 10 bad ones, right? Here's a good example though. God gave me the strength because I walk with him and I'm in his word and it's freeing that I can sit on the other side of that desk and I can say that to him. And he gets angry. He says, I've already told human resources you're stepping down. What am I supposed to do now? I said, I didn't ever tell you to tell him that, right? What am I supposed to do now? 
And he says, I want you to know, you're not getting a raise, you're not getting your bonus, you're going on a performance improvement plan, and you know that no one passes those. In 30, 60, 90 days, you'll be gone. I said, that's all right. If God chooses for me to be gone, I'll be gone. I was like, you're going to get my best, and we'll leave the results up to God. 30, 60, 90 days go by, and guess what? Number one region in his division right here. Doesn't always work out like that, though. It did this time, and I'm grateful for that. But I would have been all right if it didn't also. You know what happened 60 days later after that? I got a phone call for another job offer. And God opened up the door. And when I called my boss and said, it's time for me to go, he said, oh, no, you've turned everything around. And I said, it's not about circumstance. It's about God's calling and God's will. Man, there's freedom. There's freedom in that. Let me not wander from your commandments. Don't wander from what God calls you to do. And how do you know? Get in his word. That's how you know. Verse 14, the psalmist delights in God's word as much as in all riches. Whew. I long for that desire. As in all riches, I pray, that's my prayer, that God would put that desire in my heart that I would long for his word as in all riches. That's my prayer for y'all as well. Just last week, Pam Casey, my district manager, called me up. And she's diagnosed with, um, with cancer, ovarian cancer. And so we prayed, and we talked. And I reminded her of Psalms 55, 22, cast your cares upon the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will not let the righteous fall. She texted me yesterday. This was her text. So my boss, Dave Johnson, and I were talking about my outlook, and I guess I told him that me and God are tight. <laughs> we got this. I remember someone else telling me that long ago. She's facing ovarian cancer, and she has freedom of the circumstances that the enemy has placed on her. Why? Because her and God are tight, because they hang out, because they're close, because they're good friends, because she is in his word and hears him speaking to her through it. There is reward in God's word. It's reliable. It's rewarding. And now let's come to our third point. It is redemptive. And you know what that is? That is the greater reward of them all. It's redemptive value. Psalms 55, 22, I just told you, it cast your cares upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Who is righteous in this room? Psalms 3.20, or excuse me, Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned. If all have sinned, then how are we righteous? The psalmist, what does he say? How can a young man keep his way pure? Who is pure? Who is without sin? Ah, the great thing is, since the psalmist asked the question, he also gives the answer. By guarding it according to your word. What does God's word say about our righteousness and our purity? 
In Romans 5, 8, this is what it says. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in 5.19, he goes on to say, So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. We are made righteous. We are made pure because of the work of Christ on the cross and nothing else. And what does it give us? Redemption. We can stand before holy God with no sin seen on us at all because the righteousness of Christ is imputed into us and we are therefore restored in relationship with God. That was his plan from the beginning and in the entirety of the Bible we see it at the beginning and unfold and interwoven and consistent all the way through till the end of God's word. It is redemptive. It is in God's word that we see his redemptive plan that restores our relationship with him. Dear friends, if you don't know of that plan, don't leave here today without inquiring of it. Don't leave. As I close in prayer, I'll ask our pastors to come forward. If you have any questions about that redemptive plan, stop us, talk to us. We would love to answer those questions. Let us pray. Oh, Father God, we praise your mighty name. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it is reliable. We thank you that it is truth without exception from cover to cover that we can trust in it, that we can plot the course of our lives based upon it. We thank you that your love is so great that you reward us through it and your love is so great that you, dear Jesus, stepped out of heaven, took on human flesh, lived, died, and resurrected to restore us with you. Oh, Lord God, I thank you. I love you. I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Every knee will bow, every eye will see. Thanks for listening to the Parks Church of Melissa podcast. We meet at 1030 Sunday mornings at Melissa Middle School, and we look forward to seeing you there soon. The Parks Church, for the city, about a person.